We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Hello, and welcome to The Naked Scientists, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine. I'm Will Tingle, and this week, during the spookiest time of the year, we're going to look at the unfair portrayal that certain organisms get due to their reputation of being scary, dangerous or gross. Instead, we will talk about what makes them great for both the planet and ourselves, as well as what we can do to protect them. That owl is right there. All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions. Research. Technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. In this most hallowed time of the year, many of us are looking forward to going out, seeing images of witches, ghosts and ghouls, and getting a good fright. But a few poor organisms got caught up in this negative press somewhere along the way, and are now stuck with a bad rap. Well, that's what this show is hoping to remedy, as we extol the virtues of so-called creepy creatures and frightening fungi. But before any of that, how did we get here? Why did certain animals become attached to Halloween, and how far back does it go? I spoke to historian at Stanford University and author of Flying Snakes and Griffin Claws, Adrian Mayer. Certain animals are synonymous with Halloween, for starters, because they're nocturnal and predatory. These creatures uh, engage in mysterious activities in the dark, and so they've been cloaked in superstitions since ancient times. And the combination of dark gray, brown, or black colors with their sort of cryptic, mysterious nighttime habits, that kind of brings a sort of sense of fear and awe, especially If you think back in history when the only lights at night were oil lamps and wax candles, if you just think about how dark and long the nights were for people before electricity, it's easy to imagine how frightening the creatures of the night might be, especially if you knew or could sense that that they were maybe lurking just beyond that flickering light of a fire or a candle flame. I'd never thought about the colour scheme being scary but that's a very good point because you don't have a scary blue jay do you not really no (laughs) i guess that makes sense from a a sort of almost an evolutionary defense mechanism standpoint if something is predatory and nocturnal you don't want to be anywhere near that yes we have an evolutionary benefit in being frightened of such creatures we need to be able to feel terror and react to them we we do seem to be sort of hardwired to be afraid of or repelled by certain distinctive features of dangerous predators or poisonous animals because they were they were real genuine threats to our survival for most of human history stealthy hunters in the night they preyed on early humans so we learned to fear predators with certain features of big eyes large claws and talons and ferocious teeth i think we did 
evolved to be afraid of these creatures. Obviously, evolving to be afraid of creatures like this means that it sort of goes back further than we could ever measure it because it is sort of a primal instinct. But is there a a time where these sort of organisms got drawn into folklore, into scripture, as it were? I think we can go back to ancient Greece and Rome, and especially Rome, I think, because the Romans had all these superstitions and omens, and they're all always looking for signs in nature that would warn them about bad things that were about to happen. And of course, the Romans came to Europe and even Northern Europe and England, and so they brought a lot of those superstitions. That's an excellent point. It's almost like humans evolved to be so good at pattern recognition that as soon as they see something strange in nature happen at the same time as something they don't like, it must be related, right? Oh, I think that's the basis of superstition is that causality. I mean, even if you're not superstitious, you think to yourself, well, it couldn't hurt. <laughs> You've touched on there the the idea of, you know, creatures with talons and, and teeth and stuff that you'd do well to stay away from. But there's also organisms like funguses and worms, which are, you know, let's be honest, not quite as threatening, but they still have this sort of attachment to being scary or disgusting. Is that, why might that be? I think we have an evolutionary repulsion for things that we find disgusting or repellent because they could in fact be dangerous to our health. There are scientists who actually study the emotion of disgust and find that it is universal to certain organisms or situations that could in fact be unhealthy or dangerous. This is an interesting one because we talk a lot about the past and now it makes sense as to why they steered clear of certain individuals or organisms. But this fear has stayed with us even as we enter a time where we we understand far more about the natural world and what goes on in the dark in the woods. Why do you think this fear-inducing image endures even as society becomes less afraid of the dark? People today are fascinated and, you know, morbidly interested in in the same things, both real and imaginary, that terrified people of antiquity. Telling tales and stories of fearsome, dreadful monsters is thrilling. It's an adrenaline rush. And people think it's fun to share scary experiences and fears of eerie creatures and monsters with their friends. So it's, it's something that we do in groups. And I think, as I mentioned, there's an evolutionary benefit to it. We need to be able to feel terror and react to it. And I think we humans still need to face fear in order to maintain not only our physical survival instincts, but also our psychological resilience. We humans seem to know and understand that feeling fear is important for escaping life and death situations. And I think Halloween is uh, one of those outlets for expressing the primeval fear and keeping all systems go. So to lose this fear would almost be to lose our humanity. I think you could say that, yes. Stanford University's Adrian Mayer. So where to start in our Halloween redemption arc? Well, you can't have a good proper witch's brew without a few toadstools. Fungi have been long heralded as a sign of death and decay in the natural world, and whilst that is true, it plays into the absolutely essential processes that this incredibly diverse group of organisms perform. To learn more, I took our own James Titko into London to meet our field guide. Hi, I'm Emily, and we're going on a walk through Streatham Common Woods. I'm a wildlife educator, and I like to help connect people with their green spaces. First and foremost, James, I'm going to serve you up this potentially mean question off the cuff. Do you think a fungus is a plant or an animal? Now, Will, 
what do you take me for? I know it's neither. I did a little bit of reading before we came out. I'm not going to claim to be an expert, but I'm pretty sure that was a trick question. So actually, fungi are their own kingdom. They used to be classified as plants and only actually got their own kingdom in around the 1950s. So way back when we used to classify things as either animals and anything that wasn't an animal was classified as a plant. Whereas now we know that they're at their own kingdom and actually fungi are more closely related to humans than they are to plants. I don't know about you, but I've come here today with a kind of preconception that fungi are in some way dangerous or I feel like I've been warded away from them by my parents, by other adults as I was growing up. Is that a justified reaction? Should we be careful around them or is that phobia by definition irrational? I think a lot of people are scared of fungi because they don't really know what fungi do. I definitely walk around a lot hearing parents screaming at their kids not to touch mushrooms. (laughs) Funnily enough though you can touch all the mushrooms that you find Even the poisonous ones are only really harmful if you ingest them. Whereas touching them is absolutely fine. Nothing's going to happen to you. I don't know about you, but I think we should go and find some. I'm very excited. Let's get going. That looks gross. (laughs) We're here to to extol the virtues. (laughs) That's what I envisage when I think of a mushroom. That brown toadstooly type. What am I looking at here? So this fungus is called oak-loving calibia. I quite like it because it jiggles, and I really recommend if you're getting into fungi to use all your senses. A lot of people smell fungi as well. Different fungi have really distinct odours. Some just generally mushroomy. Yeah, smells like soil. Why is that? Are these ones edible? No. I'm not a foraging expert, so I know a bit about the edibility of mushrooms, but in general, I tend to not go down that route just because I find it a bit easier and I'm more interested in their roles in ecosystems. As something very near and dear to my heart, you do mention the ecosystem and, and fungi play no small part in keeping that ecosystem up and running. It's true. They do many things. I think primarily just decaying organic matter like leaf litter. They also break down parts of trees So you have things like lignin, which is quite hard to break down, and they're the only things that are able to do that. So without fungi, we would just have wood everywhere. And breaking down wood is such an important thing, not just on dead trees, but living trees as well. So as trees get older, it's really important for the fungi to come in and basically rot out the centre of the wood. And as they decay woods, it sort of becomes an ecosystem engineer in that it will create hollows for owls to move in. Woodpeckers can then have it. Beetles start moving in. And you find that the tree, because of the fungi, becomes a hub of life in itself. We've gone this whole time without talking about the fact that it is the spooky season and Halloween. And you've found some absolute corkers for us to talk about at such topical time of the year. So what we have here is Dead Man's Fingers, Xylaria polymorpha. It's a really interesting fungus. I think it's called Dead Man's Fingers because it's meant to look like a dead man's fingers coming out of his grave, a bit like in the Thriller music video. But actually Dead Man's Fingers has a lot of medicinal uses. So in ancient Ayurvedic medicines, it encourages women to lactate. super spooky (laughs) and we've got some crystal brain on the other side of this log i'm gonna Um, touch it will does not like that that is that is foul that poor thing it's just trying to do its job and we've come along poked it and gone i hate that it looks like snot we've just gone on about how actually not all that much about mushrooms is toxic however what is this 
This is a cinnamon bracket. It is apparently the only known toxic polypore in Europe. It is a neurotoxin, so it contains about 40% polyporic acid, which will cause irreversible damage to your nervous system, which is fantastic. And apparently, if you ingest it, your pee turns purple. You can't just say that and not expect one of us to eat it. <laughs> James, you found an eyeball. Oh, it's, an, it's like a nipple. <laughs> I'm not afraid to say it. These are collared earth stars. So I haven't picked them from the ground. They start off as balls and as it rains, they basically unfurl open into this saucer shape and they push themselves off the ground. And what happens is when it rains, they'll release their spores from their spore sac. So it'll be like that. Whoa. It's like if you can imagine pressing an old fashioned perfume bottle, it comes with that little... I feel like I've inhaled a lot of spores. Actually, fungal spores is the highest content of organic matter that we inhale on the daily. Some fungal spores cause harm, but you've got to sort of be like right with your nose in it while you puff it for it to go in. Some of them will cause lung disease. But actually, fungal spores are so important and they actually help our clouds form, which then lead to rain. So when the water vapour is in the air, it needs something to condense against to basically form clouds which then cause it to rain, which is why there's so much rain in tropical ecosystems, because the mushrooms and the clouds are forming this constant feedback loop. You've talked us through how great fungi are for the ecosystem, but far more important than that, I need them to be important to me. So apart from uh, funguses as a foodstuff, which they are increasingly more nowadays, what kind of benefits do we have that are gained from funguses that we perhaps don't even realise? I think when a lot of people think of food fungi, they think of like fungi that you literally directly cook into meals. But fungi is incorporated into our day-to-day lives all the time. So yeast for rising bread, for example, fermenting of your beer, your classic penicillin, which has completely revolutionised human medicine. That is thanks to a fungus in a Petri dish. A lot of people report that it has completely changed the face of treatment of mental illnesses. 6% of your medicinal fungi have some sort of like property in terms of like anti-carcinogenic properties or great for the immune system. This is knowledge that's been around in a lot of traditional cultures for hundreds and hundreds of years that I think we really need to reconnect with our indigenous communities and bridge that barrier between the way we live and what they know of plants and fungi in general. From the past to the future as well because fungi are apparently playing an astonishing role in not only the cleanup of toxic waste but also plastic pollution as well yeah so microremediation or microrestoration is the field as we know it there's been lots of fungi that are able to break down toxins that we put into our environment such as pesticides harmful chemicals but as we know there's so many fungi millions of species yet to be discovered so there could be loads of them that are able to do that and it really emphasizes how we should invest in mycology because a lot of the solutions to the problems we've created could very well be in that realm of science the climate is warming what can we expect in the future, do you think, to happen to worldwide fungal populations? And if it's bad news, is there any way we can help protect them? Well, as we've discussed, fungi are so closely interlinked with the recycling of nutrients back into the ground, breaking down vegetation. And a big part of that is capturing carbon in soils through their affiliation with the trees. The plants aren't doing this alone. When we think of healthy ecosystems and forests that are able to be carbon sinks, that is due to the relationship that they have 
with the fungi. And so as a result, fungi is a really good indicator of soil health, which is so important for us in agriculture, carbon sequestration. Protecting fungi is pretty much hand in hand with fighting the climate crisis. So the biggest threat that fungi face is habitat loss, as with many of our species. So a major thing that we can do to help that is sort of combat this need for tidiness that we tend to have as humans, um, leaving more dead wood in place, incorporating dead wood into forestry management plans. Habitat loss isn't just a loss of woodland as well. Habitat loss is the degradation of our soils through agriculture. And we know that the more diverse soils are, the more we can sort of benefit from agriculture in general as we move away from monocultures, more into permacultures. And also it holds the soil together, so it prevents erosion, will reduce flooding, which is something that we're going to see more of as the climate crisis continues and we see more and more extreme weather events. So they're definitely really important to think about. All of that from one patch of woodland. Amazing. We should also say, whilst it is safe to touch any UK species of fungus, obviously be aware for allergies, cracked skin, that sort of thing, and definitely wash your hands. You do not know what else has touched that fungus. Anyway, thank you so much to Emily Robinson for showing the ropes to a couple of fun guys. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Will Tingle. Still to come, why bats are in a bit of a flap and what we can do to help them out. But first, we've just finished with fungi, but let's stay in the soil for a moment because there is so much going on underground that is beneficial to us without us even realising. And one of the groups of animals that encapsulates this the most are the earthworms. Day and night, they labour underneath our feet to make the soil rich for agricultural use. And what thanks do they get? Kids throw them at each other and scream. Now that simply isn't fair, particularly when you understand just how much earthworms contribute to keeping us fed, as I heard from Colorado State University's Stephen Fonte. Earthworms are really important in terms of recycling the organic matter, the dead plants that, that fall to the soil. Those contain a lot of nutrients locked up that plants need, and earthworms are key for helping to liberate those nutrients and make them available for new plants. They're also changing the soil structure a lot in porosity by through their burrows, and they make little aggregates or casts as they go through and, and chew up soil. And that really helps water infiltrate when we have a big rainstorm and also helps avoid erosion. I did see one estimate that there might be as many as 400 billion billion individual worms in the top six inches of the Earth's soil. I don't think they were talking about earthworms specifically, obviously, and there are a lot of other worm groups out there. But even still, if earthworms make up a fraction of that amount, it surely translates to a huge amount of food production that they're involved in. So we looked at both two groups of crops. We looked at grains like corn, wheat, rice, and barley. And we found that earthworms contribute just under 7% of the total crop production or total production of grains worldwide. And that adds up to quite a bit. So it's about 128 million metric tons, according to our estimates. And just to put that in perspective, that 128 million metric tons of grain I was looking up the other day puts earthworms right on par with Russia and Brazil in terms of global grain producers. So it's fourth and fifth place now on a national scale. Are these percentages or these amounts constant throughout the world? Is there one unified worm yield or are there places and conditions in which worms contribute more to food production? Yeah, so the way our study did this is we looked at 
the distribution of crops globally and as well as management factors like how much uh, nitrogen is applied and the soil type. And, you know, some soil types allow earthworms to have a greater benefit or not. And then we also looked at estimated earthworm populations. And so places where they don't fertilize as much, that's one factor that's allowing earthworms to have potentially a bigger role there. Also, the soil types that we find in a lot of developing places like in Sub-Saharan Africa and in Latin America and the Caribbean are more conducive to that earthworm benefit. And so we're seeing that earthworms are, you know, while the global average for grain contribution is about six and a half or seven percent in Africa, that that average bumps up to about 10 percent and eight percent in the Latin American and the Caribbean region. And so it's not completely uniform, at least in terms of the relative increase. At the same time, if we're to look at the absolute increase, production levels are considerably higher, for example, in a lot of Europe and in a lot of Eastern Asia. And those are also places where we've estimated there to be a lot of earthworms, more so than, for example, we see in a lot of the Great Plains in the US. And so in those areas, while the percent increase attributed to earthworms still hovers around 7 or 8%, the absolute amount that they're contributing is considerably more. So earthworms are maybe increasing global grain production by 40 million metric tons, both in Europe and Eastern and Southeast Asia. I mean, that brings up an interesting point from a complete layman's perspective here, because obviously we're looking at trying to sort of move away from fertilizers, which we know are causing havoc with runoff and problems in rivers and ecosystems. And we're looking for sort of more renewable dubbed green alternatives. It's not as simple, surely, as throwing some more worms into the soil. Yeah, to be clear. So we are not advocating that we go and inoculate soils with earthworms. Um, that could be a bit of a contentious issue because a lot of earthworms are considered a basic species in parts of the world, in many parts of the world, and can do a lot of damage to natural ecosystems adjacent to our farmlands. Um, within farms, they're generally positive. But there's um, management that we can do if we... If we have the right management practices, you know, like reduced tillage and actually supplying food for earthworms in the form of um, adding manure or compost or leaving crop residues behind. Uh, those practices can really help uh, stimulate earthworm populations. And they are there and they will likely, their, their populations will increase on their own. We don't have to be adding them. So if we look after our earthworms, the earthworms look after the soil and hopefully everyone wins. Yeah, they all work together, so they, they benefit from any of the same things. And hopefully we're able to, to leverage earthworms and other soil organisms to uh, increase the overall sustainability and, and resilience of our agricultural systems. Colorado State University's Stephen Fonte there, thank you very much. And so we come finally to the noise above our heads, the animal that is maybe the most synonymous with Halloween and one that has had a tough few years, shall we say. I'm sure most of you have twigged what it is by now, but we are, of course, talking about bats. And here with me to talk all about things with wings is the Wildlife Trust's Ian Webb. Ian, thank you very much for joining me. I'm sure you're much the same as I am, but I love bats, even if they had no use to us whatsoever. They'd still be a marvel of powered flight and echolocation. That being said, even discounting Halloween, do you think it's fair to say they've had something of an image problem, particularly recently? I think that's very fair to say, William, very fair indeed. Unfortunately, yeah, recent situations have meant that a bit of a misunderstanding and, and misplaced blame has been put at the toes or the wingtips of bats recently. It's almost unfortunate, isn't it, that because they have such a good immune system, 
they're immune to Ebola and and COVID and stuff like that, that they act as such perfect reservoirs for passing illnesses over to us. They can be, yeah. And when we get more engaged with their habitat and in, in, sort of interact with them more, then those risks increase. But not to say that every new virus that comes out is related to bats it's just one thing that people tend to leap to because they're sort of synonymous with evil and nasty halloweeny things so if you can pick on somebody why not pick on bats yes and that isn't fair at all in fact they have immense uses as callous as it sounds immense uses to humans not just to the ecosystem insect control they're fantastically useful at that they are the primary predator of nocturnal insects throughout the globe really it's quite phenomenal there are 1400 species of bats throughout the world and the majority of them about 70 percent of them feed on insects of different sorts so in various places they do have a major impact you know if you're talking about agricultural pests in certain areas where there's large numbers of bats they have a, a massive impact you know reducing the need for pesticide use on various crops so much so that bats are actively encouraged by putting up bat houses to attract these numbers of bats to help save farmers money and reduce artificial chemicals being consumed by people and going into the wider environment and we don't notice it obviously because it's at night <laughs> it's a phenomenal thing and just relatively recently they understand the value of having these bats is key and ironically enough given the bad flack they've had from covid and ebola and the like in areas where you do see a bat population due to, you know, flooding destroys a bridge that they're nesting in or something like that, you see a rise in insect population, you see a rise in insect-related illnesses. Yeah, that's correct. Because bats are there, like I said, a primary predator of nocturnal insects, like mosquitoes, for an example, you know, if you remove that predator or reduce the numbers enormously, and obviously those, those, those pest species will increase with the climate breakdown going on and temperatures rising then diseases you know mosquito-borne diseases are spreading further north and will impact more greater and greater populations in europe and north america and north asia so not having bats there to to reduce that impact is really serious that obviously benefits us in our food production and our, our lack of getting ill but no doubt it impacts the ecosystem as well Oh, definitely. Really imperative, really, for having... It's almost like uh, bats are a keystone species, being long-lived mammals that can cover quite a large part of the landscape. That loss for insect control is major, but there's also the other aspects of why bats are so important to ecosystems throughout the globe, you know, pollination and seed dispersal. You talk about food pollination, uh, food production, some of people's favourite foods. (laughs) This is strong pandering now, but they are pollinated, created by bats. That's correct, yeah. All those people who like uh, tequila, I can imagine some nodding going on at the moment as we listen. The uh, agave that they use to make tequila and mezcal is pollinated by the lesser long-nosed bat. And chocolate as well. Chocolate and tequila. If you love chocolate and or tequila, you cannot hate bats. Despite all their uses, though, the majority of bats, if not all species of bat, are currently under threat. And it's very easy to say because of climate change. But what are the main problems that bats are facing? Other than climate change... um, Habitat destruction, habitat fragmentation, direct persecution in some cases, intensification of agriculture, um, local persecution, well, the consumption of bats as well, you know, a good source of protein. You know, a kilo and a half of fruit bat is really quite valuable to, to eat for people. Um, and direct persecution, not so much these days, as there's more understanding and people understand the value of bats and their, you know, their essential contribution to diverse ecosystems but also the production of food etc with all that being said with the importance on so many levels of bats and the vulnerabilities they face what can be done globally and for you personally what is the wildlife trust doing to help preserve bats 
Well, I think one of the key things is spreading the information, you know, letting people and the public know that bats are really valuable and, and shouldn't be thought of as vermin or disgusting and are really are essential for the future of so many ecosystems throughout the globe. Um, another one is the understanding of a sort of political level. The more people that support organisations such as the Wildlife Trust or any other organisation, conservation organisation around the globe, um, there will be some interest in preserving bats. And the more people that can support those charities, the greater the chance of bats can survive. There are various bat-specific charities that could be supported. And you know, if you're fortunate enough to own a bit of land or a garden or whatever, doing things in your garden to help can help bats as well. Increasing the number of insects in your garden will help bats to feed. You know, put a water feature in a pond doesn't have to be very big. Leave a bit of your grass long, and probably actually eating organic vegetables and organic food as well. You know, the, the use of pesticide has caused the, the crash in so many species of insect that has an impact on bats. The other thing that can be done is go out and enjoy bats and do things with bats. There are many bat walks and bat tours that go on. The, the Cambridgeshire Wildlife Trust do a bat pun safari, so if you happen to be in Cambridge between May and September, come along on a Friday and Saturday night and come on the river and you'll be surrounded by bats. And you will catch me on the first bat punt of 2024. Ian Webb from the Wildlife Trust's Thank you very much indeed. And thank you all very much for listening. I hope that even if you do still find some of these organisms slightly repulsive, you can now at least appreciate what they do for us and for the world. And that's it for this week. Join us next week where the microbiome will be going under our microscope. We'll be finding out how you can reap the biggest benefit possible from boosting the bacteria in your gut. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Will Tingle. Thanks for listening. And until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.